Hello and welcome to another exciting edition of the School Safety Free Period. I am Amanda Klinger. And I'm Dr. Amy Klinger. And we are with the Educators School Safety Network. We are a national nonprofit organization and we provide school safety training and resources and technical assistance throughout the United States and Canada. And we take this work very serious and we are uh, very serious academics. However, every once in a while, right around this time every week, not this time of year, all year, we uh, are a little bit less serious and we are a little bit uh, more having fun and we have our school safety free period. So welcome to those of you who are joining us on live on YouTube and also welcome to those of you who um, I hear from a lot of people who say they listen to us while they are running on the treadmill or on the elliptical or uh, washing dishes and folding clothes. So welcome to all those folks as well. Well, you know, it's kind of a relative definition of fun. You know, you said this is when we have a little more fun. We're still talking about stuff that's not necessarily yeah. so fun, but maybe in a little bit more informal way. So sure. on the other hand, if you're listening to us while you're washing dishes, you're not having that much fun either. So yeah. together, we'll make it a little more fun for everyone. So uh, we typically in the school safety free period have a tendency to talk about things that are happening in the news and we have some takeaways. And um, obviously, if you've been paying attention to the news this week, there were a lot of things happening in the news. So we decided uh, instead of to kind of retread some of the same ground talking about tragedies and, and awful things that are ha have been happening in schools, we thought we would go a little bit in a different direction and talk about some of the questions that we get um, and some of the things that we hear from folks asking us uh, over and over again. So do you have you have a question yeah. from someone? I have a couple of those, but let me start by kind of saying I think it's um, I think it's a valuable thing to note that every week, you know, we see these incidents that occur, you know, <clears throat> to some degree or another, some, you know, some more severe than others. But I think it is encouraging that we get contact from people, our readers, people who are working with us or who have read our, our stuff, who are still continuing to plug away at the work of school safety in a much more comprehensive fashion rather than just, oh no, this thing happened, let's be really reactionary. So I think it's yeah. encouraging that some of the questions that have been coming to us lately are much more looking at a more nuanced um, view of school safety and also looking at it from the both sides of the coin of this is a thing we could do, but what would be the consequences, pros and cons of doing that thing? And I think that's a really critical discussion that oftentimes doesn't happen. And so one of our readers posed that and um, was talking about the pros and cons or the relative merits, if you will, of requiring students um, to have IDs. Um, now we have, you know, we're pretty straightforward on our support for staff IDs for a variety of reasons. Uh, not the, you know, the only one that is not really a big reason is the whole idea of compliance. You should have your staff wear IDs because darn it, we told you to. Um, we're really supportive of the notion of staff IDs because of two critical factors. One is the ability of students who don't know you as a teacher or a staff member there to be able to go to you for help because they see that they know you are a safe individual. So in a crisis event, we teach kids that, you know, someone in a uniform or someone wearing our ID, we know is someone that you should be going to for and listening to um, for assistance. Um, the other is so that first responders can identify you as a staff member um, to help or to provide information or whatever those things might be. So those are two big ones um, that I think are really critical 
for... I want to add one in on there. Yeah, I want to add on another good reason for staff. You know, we talk a lot about preventing violence in schools, and, and a big component of that is engaging with visitors and having a good understanding of who's in your building and who's supposed to be there and on the rare occasion that you have someone who's not supposed to be there with potentially with ill intent. And one way to set yourself up for success to be able to successfully engage with visitors is have the people who are supposed to be there, who are there every day or who are there often um, or itinerant teachers or something like that, that those folks wear ID badges. And, you know, we work in small schools and they say, oh, we know everyone, we know everyone who's here. And, and that may be the case, but if you have a student teacher who's only there some days, um, the especially in a smaller community where, where folks might be embarrassed to engage with the person who they, I think I'm supposed to know them, but I don't actually know who they are. If they have an ID badge and they have the lanyard of our school and they have the ID badge of our school, then that's yeah. a little bit of that burden is lifted. And so a, a great way to set yourself up for success for visitor engagement is that the people who are here, who are supposed to be here, who are faculty, staff, uh, or other supporting, you know, cast members, that they have ID badges. And that just sort of takes some of that guesswork out of the equation. Yeah. So for us, it's kind of a no brainer, um, especially in 2019. You know, you can't walk into any organization um, without seeing people wearing badges, um, the people that work there. So I think for us, staff IDs are a no brainer. But I think we want to take just a minute and talk a little bit about some of the relative pros and cons of student IDs. So this would be a situation um, where we would issue students an ID and say, you need to bring it and and you need to have it on. So then there, you know, so it raises a million questions and we've worked with a number of schools that have them and continue to have them, that used to have them and don't have them, that have them and aren't using them very well. There's a whole bunch of different uh, scenarios there. But I think it needs to be an intentional choice Mm. where you have examined the relative merits of having them and not having them. And you have determined that there are more benefits than there are problems. So which do you want to start with, benefits or problems? Well, before you get into benefits and problems, a foundational principle uh, of student ID badges or frankly, anything that you undertake is if we say this is a requirement and we have a policy saying this is a requirement, this is the way we do things then you better be prepared to do the work to make that happen or to have the fights to make that happen or to drop it as a policy. And, and I, I feel like such a broken record when I talk about this, uh, but this is my, you know, this is bringing my legal training to bear. You need one of those little white barristers wigs that you put on real quick when you're going to talk about the legal part of it. That would be it. good. I'm going to do it. I'd do it. So Barrister wig on, you are better off to not have a policy. You are better off to be silent as to a policy uh, than to have a policy and say, we're going to require ID badges of students, and then we don't actually enforce it, or we don't actually care. Or the policy says you have to have it and have it visible, but no one ever has it visible and no one ever has it. Um, okay, that- so, so takeaway number one, if you're thinking about maybe we should just develop a policy on student IDs and then not really worry about whether we do it, but at least we'd have a policy on the books. Bad. Don't do it. Bad. Yeah. Okay. So what do you want to do, benefits or problems? Uh, let's do benefits. Benefits. All right. Well, a lot of people would say this is a way to make sure that we know um, who's supposed to be on our campus, that we can identify students. I could call. I could look at your ID and call you by name. I could know that you were supposed to be there and We've seen places where they're coded. So freshmen have one color badges, you know, or IDs, et cetera. So we could do that. We could identify people that 
other students from other schools maybe, or someone that looks young enough to be a student, but it can't commingle with the rest of the student body because they don't have an ID, an ID badge. We could say that that's a benefit. However- Can I, can I start po poking holes in those? However, yeah, I guess I get to be, you know, Betty optimist today and you get to be, yeah. okay, well, go ahead. I mean, it sort of, it makes me sort of think, if your school is so large that you don't know the kids, and I understand that happens sometimes, but if you don't know the kids and the, having the ID badge is the way for me to be able to know the kid and know who belongs here, how easy is it for me to borrow a badge or come across the badge or whatever the case may be and stick it on because you don't really know who I am anyway. And, you know, kids at that age are growing and changing and look different very rapidly. So yep. be like, oh, yeah, of course that's me. Well, you don't know who I am anyway. So how do you know? And I like so the takeaway, takeaway number two is, is this the battle you want to fight every day? Do I really want to spend all my time going, where's your ID badge? Where's your ID badge? Where's your ID badge? Do you have your badge? Do I really want to do that? And what am I not doing when I'm playing policeman for the ID badges? And the benefits that you suggest, they sound like they would happen only in an idealized version of this. I don't, I just don't see how it's going to really help you solve those other problems. And when you talk about, well, I understand that, but like on debate team, I have to refute the one side as well as I have to support the, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you one. Maybe it's good to teach kids responsibility. You have to, you know, you have this badge and you have to carry it. Um, one of the schools we work with, they, the students need to use it as an access card. So when they're going from, it's more of a campus situation, they have to scan in to go into the building. Uh, maybe I'm using it to scan for lunches. So this is how I pay for my lunches, is by scanning. So, I mean, we could say that it's a way to give students a sense of ownership, a sense of responsibility. It allows us to track some of the, some other things, you know, attendance-wise, who's in this building or you know the the whole lunch thing sure then we get i mean so you know and and we can we can argue the merits of you know what do you what's your thinking of does it make kids feel like they are you know uh, you know we we often rail against the idea of surveillance and treating kids like you know like they're inmates etc not sure that ids really push you in one direction or the other of that what do you think I would think that they certainly have the potential to push you into being, I'm a number, you don't know who I am, I have to wear this thing because you don't know who I am. Uh, 24601. Mm -hmm. I mean, I... Now, if anyone knows what that, what that musical reference is, you should be... Commenting. Yes. Everyone knows. Everyone knows what that musical reference is. Um, but I think that it, it might not be that way for all kids. And there certainly are kids who are going to get a kick out of, I'm a rising freshman and I have my ID and I use it to go from building to building. There is going to be a percentage of kids who feel that way, but there also is going to be a percentage of kids who are going to feel like, you don't know who I am. I have to carry this thing and I have to have this badge and that's the only way you know who I am. And also, you know, I like your idea of that you have an ID badge and you can call kids by their name, unless the names are printed like big. Have you ever seen those ID badges? The names are well, really tiny. People with better eyesight than me. There's that. Yeah, I, I, it just it seems to me that the you are creating more problems and the thing well, and the I benefits think some of it is the culture. Some of it is the culture of the school. You know, if you're an urban school where all the kids are, you know, they have cards already to use the subway and they are used to, you know, 
maybe it's less of a thing, but you know, you have, you know, rural seventh graders that, you know, hop on the bus and really don't even bring a coat practically. I mean, so there's, you know, there's a lot of those factors, but I guess the underlying thing, and we can argue all those situational things, but the underlying thing is the point that you always make that I think you must have stitched into a sampler in your house somewhere is the point you always raise up. What are we trying to accomplish? What's the point? Why do you want ID badges for mm -hmm. your students? What are you trying to accomplish? And do you think you will really, will those benefits really accrue to you? Because there will be a cost. There will be fights and there will be haranguing students and there will be some students who feel like this makes them feel like a number, not a person. There will be unintended negative consequences and problems. And will those benefits really accrue to you? And are those benefits no. even that great? And, and frankly, we have not really enumerated any super spectacular benefits. Um, and I think sometimes people go after the idea of student IDs because they're trying to solve a problem that could be solved in other ways yeah. without unintended consequences. So if you're trying to say, we want to make sure that people aren't in our building who shouldn't be here, then work on access control and visitor engagement. Mm -hmm. If you're saying, we want to make sure that our students are responsible and can carry this, then work on that in a different fashion. Mm -hmm. um, if you have access control issues or visitor engagement issues or disclosure issues or whatever those things might be, I just don't know that hanging a piece of plastic around a kid's neck is really going to make a substantive difference. Yeah. Not in the same way that having your staff members wear IDs. That is almost without problems, yeah. um, with lots and lots of benefits. I just don't see them as having the same value. So you think we've solved it? No. But oh, I do. if you're gonna have takeaway number, what is this, four, takeaway three or four, if, you're, if you insist on having student IDs and you're gonna have them use lan lanyards, make sure they are tearaway lanyards. Please, please, please uh, make sure that they are tearaway lanyards and that you have given students an adequate rationale of why it's important as opposed to do it because I said so. Yeah. Uh, so those, if you're going to do it, at least implement it in that fashion. So that was one, the first question. We had another question come to us, which is a little more uh, esoteric. Um, in, in, it was referring to our book, Keep Keeping Students Safe Every Day, and it was talking about um, there's a point where we talk about the state of school safety, sort of like the state of the union or whatever, but we, we sort of challenge people to examine the state of school safety in your school. And this particular reader says, you know, what do you mean by that? What, how do you examine the state of school safety in a given school? Oh, Want to take a crack at that one? Yeah, and I think, you know, part of that question is a challenge to think about it differently and to think about it in a more nuanced and less of a surface level discussion. Because, you know, I interact with a lot of people who will say, well, we had training in active shooter response and we have an SRO. Therefore, problem solved, we are safe. And that's good work and those are important steps and uh, we've we've changed the locks and we have secure and people will name these litany of target hardening type practices that are things that are commonly done and are commonly mm -hmm. lauded as a solution. And that question, the state of school safety, is asking people to look at it in a more 
comprehensive view. So what are we doing about violence prevention? What are we doing about access control? What are we doing about school climate and culture? Do the kids feel like I'm going through security to get on an airplane or do they feel like I'm coming to a school and people are paying attention and people are being proactive? But and I people don't, are present and available and accessible. But I don't feel like I'm walking into prison. And so I, I think, you know, you know, understanding those and then also the, the discussion that is all, always, you know, left out of the discussion, which is, do, do we have, you know, plans and procedures to respond to natural hazards, things that are not violence? I mean, even I feel like, you know, that's something that is so important to the work that we do. And I feel like even we have a tendency to always walk down that path of violence prevention and violence right. response. And, you know, statistically speaking, the crisis event that you as an educator or as an administrator will experience will probably not be high level of violence. It will probably be some sort of low level disruption or some sort of technological or natural hazard. Those are the things or that happen all the time. A medical emergency. Or what? Or a medical emergency. It's yeah. typically going to be one of those three, a low level. Yeah. Low level violence, some sort of natural disaster, or some kind of medical emergency. Those are the most common. And then I would say, if you want to assess, so if we talk about assessing the state of school safety, take those three things and stack up the amount of training, time, energy, resources, whatever you want to talk about, that has been have been allocated, yeah. and quantify that of how much of that can be applied to those three most common things mm -hmm. that you are likely to face. And typically that's not where our time and energy has gone. Yeah. And um, I would also really challenge one. people to identify or examine, is there a discrepancy between what we have written on paper or what the leadership or what the administration thinks everyone knows and what people actually know? And I, and I know I've talked about this on the podcast before, but in some of the school safety courses that I teach at the graduate level, I have my students look at the emergency operations plan for their school district. And every semester, I have people who come, who write in their reflection, embarrassed. And I don't think they should be embarrassed, but they're embarrassed to say, I didn't realize this document existed. I didn't realize all the stuff that was in it. I'm quote unquote, just a classroom teacher. No one told me any of this. If I hadn't had this assignment, I never would have found this document and read it. And so there, it definitely is the case that in some school districts, there's a discrepancy between what the director of safety thinks everyone knows, what the principals think everyone knows, what the superintendent thinks everyone knows. And so yeah. that I think is, is perhaps the, the most critical looking from a comprehensive standpoint. And so all hazards and what do people actually know versus what do we uh, think is the level of institutional knowledge? Well, let me enumerate a couple of things then if we want to have some takeaways for folks. So here's a couple of things to we'll, we'll sort of be real specific about. So go to your school and find your crisis plan. Find uh, when it was revised last. Look to see if it's updated. Does it include the gym that was torn down five years ago? Does it list the principal who left two years ago? Um, look around and see where it is available. Talk to folks and see if they know uh, that it exists or if they have ever seen it or if they have a copy of it. Then run down to the math department and get some graph paper and make yourself a little graph or some columns where you go reactive and proactive and then put into those columns things that have been done for school safety in your building. Um, we have bought 
door jamming mechanisms. We've had active shooter training. Uh, we have whatever. And put them under, are these preventative measures that are proactive or are these reactive measures? And look to see where those stack up. The state of school safety is oftentimes very reactive and not often geared towards prevention and being proactive. Then go through and take your second piece of graph paper and take the training that has been given and quantify that in terms of is this active shooter based issue training mm -hmm. or does it address as as you've talked about Amanda a comprehensive more nuanced discussion about school safety so the st the state of school safety is not walking around the hallway going looks pretty safe i feel pretty safe the state of school safety is looking at all those aspects. Then go have a conversation with your kids and with your parents. How do they feel? How do they perceive do they know? what's happening? Do they know what to do? do are they aware of? And, and typically what you're going to find, and this is not necessarily true unilaterally, but typically what you're going to find in all of those exercises I just said, you're going to find a very heavy emphasis on active shooter. You're going to find an absence of communication. You're going to find very highly centralized where maybe one or two people are aware of certain things, but the vast majority of people that are going to be responding, parent, student, teacher, don't necessarily have access or are not aware or don't know that. So you're going to see some of those same sort of problems that superficially you look at it and go, yeah, we did all this active shooter training um, and we wrote a crisis plan about active shooters and lockdowns. We are good for safety. And that's what we're trying to challenge people to do in the context of the book and in the context of this podcast is to look beyond that and really start um, taking a much more comprehensive approach and really critically going, are we being reactive or proactive? Are we, you know, where are we allocating resources and training? What percentage of training? What percentage of money? You know, we, we challenge people for every dollar you spend um, on stuff. We should be spending a dollar investing in people. And I think you can say that the same thing with ever, every dollar or every minute you spend on active shooter, you need to spend the equal amount on the things that, that Amanda, that you've described that we're much more likely to face. So I think that's kind of a long explanation, but really challenging us to take a look at the state of school safety in our classroom, in our school, in our community, district, even, you know, and, and we look at it very globally throughout the United States. And, and I want to have you back up just for a second. Can you speak just a little bit to the distinction, perhaps, between an EOP, a safety plan, or flip charts that are sometimes hung in classrooms? Ooh. Well, that's going to vary uh, dramatically from state to state. Mm -hmm. um, you know, oftentimes it, there is this big document, right? So there's the safety Bible, if you will, that is your crisis plan, your emergency operations plan, depending on what state you're in, what it's called. And it and it sort of encompasses the whole thing, the details, the, the, the rationale, the um, memorandums of understanding, all of the nuts and bolts and moving parts. And so it has the whole thing. It's like the whole suitcase of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have oftentimes in districts or state requirements where you've pulled out specific response procedures and created flip charts where you're saying, okay, you, classroom teacher, need to know these things and how to do these things. Um, but that's not to say that you shouldn't be aware of the more global picture, but typically your emergency operation plans tend to be very centralized. There's one or two people that are 
very familiar with them or that are hopefully or that are aware of them where your flip charts tend to be procedural that are disseminated a little more broadly um, that are sort of the hands-on documents unfortunately oftentimes uh, those aren't necessarily well, widely, uh, people don't know that those exist either. Does that answer that question? Yeah, I just, you know, some of those terms are sort of thrown about interchangeably. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen schools where the EOP, so the big document, was updated, but the flip charts weren't really updated. Or we've seen places where they have flip charts that get updated all the time, but the EOP hasn't been updated for 10 years and it has old, outdated information in that. Yeah. Um, and places where, you know, sometimes teachers have no idea that there's anything beyond what's in the flip chart and the flip chart doesn't really have that useful of information. And so to, to look at how those things, you know, operate in, in tandem. Well, let me say a little bit of heresy on that um, in the sense that I know that, that sometimes people get really hung up on, we are going to have an EOP that is the most beautiful EOP. It's going to be well organized and it's going to be in a really nice binder with really good dividers and it's going to be in a really nice font and color and it's going to have all these things and all these things. And so it's this beautiful window dressing document. And when they're all done, there's no time, energy, money or anything left or patience left for actual training, actual implementation, actually putting it in the hands of the people that are going to need it. So we need to be really careful that we're not focusing all of our time and energy. Clearly we want people to have a good emergency operation plan, but I am more interested in the people on the ground, the, the staff members, the people that are going to be dealing with these things, having training and knowing what to do, yeah. whether it's in a beautifully crafted book or in a flip chart or scrawled on a piece of paper, or you know whatever it might be, I'll take people that know what to do over people over districts that have a beautiful piece of window dressing, but people don't know what they're doing. Yeah, and a question that that I that we hear a lot and that I talk with people about a lot is how we should organize the flip charts that we have the flip charts, and um, unfortunately, a lot of them, especially if you buy them from a company, tend to be organized in the. Uh, if this happens, do this. If this happens, do this. And then they start to get really unwieldy because it's like yeah. student unrest about uh, workers' rights on a Tuesday when it's cold outside. Then Remember the one this. that was a bomb threat on a bus, a bomb threat before school, yeah. a bomb threat after school, and a bomb threat on a field trip. Yeah. And they have five incarnations of a bomb threat. Yeah. And so we always sort of recommend that they that flip charts are organized around the standard response procedures. So here's the response procedures for evacuation. And then that then the training component is for people to understand if I don't get direction that I should evacuate, when would be the conditions that I would evacuate until I and before I get that information. So instead of having to flip through 30 different potential scenarios that I could say, okay, there's danger in this building and I need to move kids away from danger, whether that's because the roof collapsed or the boiler exploded or there was an incendiary device brought in by someone or right. a fire, I'm evacuating in all of those scenarios. And so I have my flip chart, which help, helps me with information about evacuation. And so- And, and I'm, a fan, I'm a big fan of streamlined um, flip charts um, rather than, you know, we've seen them with, you know, 12 steps. 30 steps. I mean, yeah, lots and lots of steps. And the first one is don't panic. And the second one is whatever, uh, you know, and the more steps you put in there, the more likely it is no one's going to be able to read it in the heat of the moment. 
Um, you know, me can reading I, Don't Panic for a second? Does it, keep you from panicking. I'm sorry? It, it sounds like I hear you saying that in some instances, more words is actually not as helpful as less precise, In my personal writing and words. speaking, more words tends to be better. Mm -hmm. Or at least that seems, tends to be the default setting in my head. <laughs> uh, but in terms of EOBs, and flip charts, yeah, I think less is more. Yeah. Uh, because in the panic, in, in the heat of the moment, mm -hmm. I, I don't wanna scan 20 lines of text to figure out which direction we should be. Mm -hmm. and, the ration, and the rationale and the high level explanation doesn't need to be in the flip chart. We're yeah. evacuating to remove kids from the danger. When the danger is here, we go away from it. Yeah. That doesn't well, necessarily need to be 17 paragraphs in the flip chart. So the last thing for today kind of takes us from that. And it seems like a very subtle distinction, but I think it's a really important one. Um, and we hear this, you know, a lot. We get questions from people talking about, you know, and, and if you've listened to, you know, more than one minute of any other of our, of our podcasts, you've heard us crabbing and railing about the whole idea of in, intimidation and, and traumatizing people and, you know, the, some of the things that we do in our in our our trainings and exercises and drills is that we're traumatizing people and you know the the you know all the way up through the infamous thing in Indiana where the teachers were being shot with airsoft guns you know all the way down well in this particular um, article that I read this week I thought it was really interesting they were drawing the distinction that I guess we often kind of assume but maybe we need to be really explicit about it so maybe today's the day to do that drawing the distinction between exercises and drills so a drill is practice, right? If, if we do this, the, the fire alarm rings, we go down this way, we walk this way, we go out of the building, as opposed to exercises, which have about them a component of realism. Mm -hmm. They are supposed to be an experience. Mm -hmm. They're supposed to simulate what the thing mm -hmm. is that's happening. So if we really did, so if we did a fire drill, which we typically do, we, you know, the bell rings, we walk out. If we did a fire exercise, we would set the place on fire uh, or we'd have a fire or we'd pump smoke into the building. And, and we look at that and go, well, we would never do that. Maybe part of the reason that we are having so much pushback from these traumatic incidents that occur as part of training is because we are conflating those two things. And we are saying, that an exercise is okay, it needs to be realistic, it needs to be an experience, and that we're saying that's the only way that we can do a drill. When in reality, we can do a drill where we practice that muscle memory, that decision-making, that the, you know, forcing people to, to say, okay, what would I do, would I do this or this, as opposed to immersing them in a traumatic experience that an exercise would most likely be. And so I just think that's a very, you know, that's a distinction that maybe people need to reflect a bit on. Well, and I think some of the problem with super realistic traumatic exercises um, or, or things that people call drills that are these really realistic and intimidating and traumatic experiences is that we haven't had the foundational components of that. We haven't, folks haven't heard uh, proper foundational content knowledge. People haven't had the abstract discussion or drill component where they're practicing decision making. That we go from active shooter response is important, and so we're going to fire blanks and run around. We're going to have cops running around with fake guns, and and there's not really the like the scaffolding or the buildup to that, um, and the discussion of whether 
professional educators need to have super realistic traumatic exercises about this incredibly statistically rare event uh, is, a, is a side note. But if we feel like that must happen, then we need to at least set right. people up for success with that, where they have the well, understanding and, I think we, and the, the pre-work. We need to make it. that distinction that we can practice active shooter response. We can practice earthquake response with a drill. We don't have to simulate it. Um, and, and I think people don't really see the distinction between that and they find themselves getting in over their heads because they are trying to do what they perceive to be a drill when in reality they're trying to create an exercise. And, and I think that distinction really is important that, you know, if we want to talk about the, the, the sequence, we would do training and then we would do drills and exercises would become, would, would be the exception, not the norm. Um, and so I think that's something that that maybe people need to really, you know, we, we always talk about some of the semantic things of, you know, vulnerability assessment versus threat assessment. Maybe this is another semantic distinction that people need to really be very conscious of, that we want to advocate for drills, but we want to be very careful about exercises. Yeah, and I think some of that, some of that, those terms being used interchangeably or um, very realistic, intimidating exercises being used when maybe that's not necessary, again, comes from this notion that this work is often led by law enforcement, security, former military professionals. I mean, who need to have experiential exercises. Right. And I think, you know, when, you know, if, if we were implementing, and I, I talk about this all the time, if we were implementing a new reading curriculum, the teachers wouldn't jump right into like, exercises of, I don't know what that would look like, but a super realistic, intimidating exercise of the new reading curriculum. You would do it in the way that you do all of the other academic educational work that you undertake. And you would do it step by step and you would do it in a way that was strategic and intentional and based in best practices for what you're doing. And why school safety, we say, well, we just got to treat these teachers like cops. We do exercises for the cops, better do it for the third grade teachers too. And so I think to maybe take back some of that planning and take back some of that power into an educational perspective or, or that yeah. these, these things are undertaken in the way that you would take them under other and other educational things. But I, I also think it's important to make that deliberate distinction, yeah. to not get sucked into the idea that if we want to practice, we have to do an exercise. Nope. Yeah. We have options that are drills first. So I think making that distinction frees us from that belief that we're not really preparing if we're not doing this immersive exercise, that there is a value in the actual drill itself. Yeah. So, so well, there you go. Yeah. So that's all. I mean, that's a, we sort of went a little bit of a deeper dive on some of these questions, but we, you know, hear a lot of the same questions over and over again and um, want to make sure that we're able to answer those for folks. Um, if there was a question that you have that we didn't address, um, you feel free to reach out to us. You can reach out to us on social media, on Twitter, on Facebook. You can email us directly, info at eschoolsafety.org. Um, all of our other training and resources and information and our webinars that are a little bit more formal and other episodes of this school safety free period that are a little bit less formal um, are all available on our website, 
which again is www.eschoolsafety.org. Um, again, welcome to those who joined us live here on uh, YouTube, and also uh, thanks for joining us, those who, who do it a little bit later in the audio-only version of the podcast. Um, you can find us directly on YouTube. You can find this wherever you uh, get your podcasts, on the Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Tune in. I can't remember the other podcast things. You can also listen if you're not like a podcast savvy person. You can listen directly on our website. So please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And if you have a, a colleague that you wish had heard this discussion, uh, make sure that you send them uh, our way so that they can get some of this information as well. Do you have anything else to add? If you haven't already done so, you can also go to our website and sign up for our school safety newsletter that comes out every month. Um, it will contain some of this information and also some additional things um, to help you stay current in the areas of school safety. It may be December, but school safety is still an issue. And so uh, we're going to be right here throughout the school year, bringing you uh, the best information and research that we can find. All right. Until next time. Thanks.